The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Today's scripture reading is in 2 Samuel 11, 1-9. In the spring, when kings march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all of Israel. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbi. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. So David sent someone to inquire about her, and he said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers to get her, and when he came to them, he slept with her. Now she had just been purifying herself from the uncleanness. Afterward, she returned home. The woman conceived and sent word to inform David, I am pregnant. David sent orders to Joab, send me Uriah, the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab and the troops were doing and how the war was going. Then he said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the palace with all his master servants. He did not go down to his house. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Good morning again. If, if you are our guest here at Redeemer, and I suppose if you're not our guest here at Redeemer, my name is still Adam, and I serve as the executive pastor here at Redeemer. With little kids at home, there's always one place in the house that is a total mess. It doesn't matter how often we attack it with a broom or the robot vacuum uh, or the actual vacuum. It is always a mess. And if you have little kids or if you're a grandparent, you've been around little kids, you know where I'm talking about in the house. It is under the chair of the smallest person in your house. There is always a layer of pretzel dust and apple bits and things like that. I am convinced that a good quarter of our grocery budget gets converted to a thin layer of extra floor insulation. And I don't know how much of that we're making up in HVAC costs. Somebody should study the insulation value of goldfish crumbs. But I shouldn't blame the kids. For one thing, it's just the one of them at the, at the moment, and that, we hope that one will grow out of it. Um, for another, it's not a character problem. It's just an age thing. And then another reason I shouldn't blame them is that there were plenty of messes around the house uh, before we had children that were my messes. And my wife is here, and she's not going to say amen. Good. Thank you, dear. <laughs> we're in this Advent series called Grace in a Genealogy here at Redeemer. We're remembering the first coming of Christ, and we're looking forward to the second coming of Jesus. And we're doing this, we're preparing our hearts for Christmas by looking at the genealogy of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew and uh, focusing in on a few different stories that are there. So far, we've seen God's grace in the life of Tamar and Rahab and Ruth. Today, we want to see God's grace through the life of a person who isn't even directly named in the genealogy, a person who in the genealogy is just called the wife of Uriah. And this comes up in the genealogy of Matthew in the context of uh, Jesus' lineage and Jesus coming through King David, 
uh, who had a son, Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. Now, why isn't she named? She's the only person in Jesus' genealogy who's not named but who's there. Why is that? Uh, most think that it's because the, the attention, the thing we're supposed to focus on here, is David's sin, David's mess in the situation with Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. Now, we would expect that the greatest figure in history would have a spotless ancestry. We would expect, I think, that the Savior of the world would have a perfect background. But that's actually not what we get in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And that is to teach us that Jesus came to invite anyone in, to welcome anyone in. He came to people who were messed up. There's stories we've looked at that involve incest and a prostitute and foreigners and now adultery. But the fact that Jesus came through this line shows us that Christ is a God of grace. The Savior of the world did not come to save righteous people. He came to save guilty, messed up people. In other words, he came to extend his grace, which is seen in his lineage. He came to extend that to us, people just like us. And I hope you have a Bible with you. If you, if you will, uh, open it up to 1 Samuel chapter 8. That's where we're going to start before we get into 2 Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11. As we consider this theme of grace in the mess this morning, we're going to look at Israel's mess, David's mess, and then God's grace. So we'll start with Israel's mess. We spent the last two Sundays looking at Naomi and Ruth, and you remember that Ruth lived during the time of the judges in Israel. By the time we get to the story with King David and Bathsheba, we now have a king in Israel. And we want to talk a little bit about how we got there. How did we get from judges who are regional protectors and rulers who are raised up for a fairly short amount of time to kings who reign over all Israel? How did that happen? And the answer to the question is in 1 Samuel 8, and it's actually not a pretty picture. It's a picture of Israel's mess. And so if you will, listen to 1 Samuel 8, starting in verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel, who was a prophet, and he was the last judge. They came to him at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. How about that? And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they, all, so they also are doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So it is due to Israel's lack of trust in God that they are seeking to have a human champion that they can look to to sort of be their national savior and protector. And it's not like we can look down on them because we, after all, we want the same thing. We also, like them, can look to preachers or to politicians to be messianic figures in our lives. In my discipleship group, we're reading Dietrich Bonhoeffer's little book, Life Together. And of course, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor who ministered in Germany during the time of the rise of Hitler. And so he saw firsthand churches giving themselves over to a cult of personality. 
And he says that the tendency, uh, he says this, every cult of personality that emphasizes the distinguished qualities, virtues, and talents of another person, even if these are of a spiritual nature, is worldly and has no place in the Christian community. Indeed, it poisons the Christian community. The desire we so often hear expressed today for priestly men and authoritative personalities, think of charismatic leaders, that desire springs frequently enough from a spiritually sick need for the admiration of men and for the establishment of visible human authority. The problem, the tendency to look to a human being to be our Savior isn't always as obvious as looking to someone like an Adolf Hitler. Sometimes it can be much more subtle than that. This tendency is seen wherever there is a church built on the personality of one person. Or it's seen wherever there's a Christian in a church because of the personality of any one person other than Jesus. It's seen anywhere in the world where there's a dependence on a human being to be a Savior figure. I'll translate it a little bit this way. We want human champions because we are spiritually insecure in the human champion, Jesus Christ. We want that immediacy of a person we can see. Well, Samuel went to Israel in the midst of this mess with the Lord's response, and he went with a warning about what they would get if they got a king. And he says this, 1 Samuel 8, starting in verse 11. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He'll take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he'll appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He'll take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He'll take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And everyone who pays taxes says amen. In that day you'll cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. In the story we're going to read today about King David, we see him take a daughter of Israel a wife of a soldier for himself. So these negative prophecies about this king are going to come true in the life of David, but the people won't hear the warning. They say, no, there shall be a king over us that we may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So this is the mess of how Israel went from having judges to having kings. It was a lack of trust in their God and a desire for uh, being like all the nations and being able to see a human leader as their champion. Now, God is gracious in the midst of that. He gives them a king, uh, King Saul, who is initially a very good king, but then it ends very badly with him. And then the second king in Israel is King David. And this king was very good. He's called a king after God's own heart. He's a good king in Israel, almost always, except in the story we're going to look at. In God's grace and kindness, David did protect Israel, and David was good to Israel. He was a man of faith and of prayer. He wrote the better part of the Psalms, but he wasn't perfect. There's one major mess in his life, and that's what we're going to look at. 1 Kings 15.5 puts it this way. David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything he commanded him all the days of his life except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. 
And that's the matter we want to look to. At this point, if we were reading David's life, we were reading through the Bible cover to cover, and we were in David's life, we would be wondering whether David is the promised offspring of Abraham who finally was going to set everything right in Israel. Because he looked so good. He's the one we've been waiting for, longing for. But we're going to see clearly that's not the case. He is not the king we're looking for. He is, in fact, a great sinner like the rest of us. 2 Samuel chapter 11, go ahead and turn there if you have a Bible. In this chapter, this is the darkest episode in King David's life. And it is the episode through which God will bring the Savior. There is grace in the mess. It's the darkest episode in David's life. And it's the episode through which God is going to bring the Savior, King Jesus. In this chapter, King David's heart and actions go against Christ. If you were here last week, Pastor Josh talked us through the book of Ruth, and we saw how Ruth and Boaz pointed us to Christ. They were like lenses to see Jesus. But in this chapter, David is the opposite. He acts anti-Christ. We have to look to the opposite of what David does to see our Savior. So let's, let's do that. Let's see our Lord Jesus in contrast to David's mess. And as we walk through the story, I want you to listen for the word sent. The word sent. Because it gets repeated. And anything repeated in the Scriptures is worth paying attention to. Anything repeated in the Scriptures is worth... I'm just kidding. All right. Verse 1 of Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 11 says, In the spring, when the kings march out to war... David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Now, there's a concept there. There's an idea there that's repeated in verse 1. What is it? It's that David was supposed to go out as the king in Israel, but he was home. He stayed home. And this is the context for his temptation to sin with the wife of Uriah. David was not where he should have been. How often... Are our temptations a result of us being where we ought not be? We're in a spot where we just shouldn't be. And we know we shouldn't be there, but we're there, and that's the context in which temptation arises. That's where David finds himself. He's up on high, at home in safety. He is protected from the danger of war by his ability to send others like Joab to do his bidding. At one time in his life, he was the only one in Israel who would go out and fight Israel's battles. But here, he's the only warrior in Israel who's home. This is all in contrast to King Jesus, who, though he was God, did not count equality with God something to be exploited for his own advantage. But instead, he came here, he made himself nothing. He was born in the likeness of men and became a servant and died a death and died a death on a cross for us. Jesus is the one on high who became low. He's the opposite of David, who is here on high, who should have been low. Well, David is up there on the roof in the dead of night. He literally ascends to the rooftop. And while he's there, his eyes fall on a woman on another rooftop, and she's bathing. And the Scriptures are careful to tell us that she is very beautiful. And just like David sent Joab to the front lines, he then sent someone to find out, who is this woman? He's sending others to do his bidding. The messenger replies in verse 3, isn't this Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, and wife of Uriah the Hethite? This is all indicating to us that David is breaking the tenth of the Ten Commandments. If you've been in our foundations class this this last semester, uh, you've been memorizing the Ten Commandments. And the Tenth Commandment is, thou shalt not covet. 
You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's stuff or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And here David is coveting his neighbor's wife. And not just any neighbor's wife. The fact that this is the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah, well, these are to remind us that David actually knows Eliam and Uriah. There's a spot in the Scriptures where it tells us these people are among David's mighty men. So he's not just coveting his neighbor's wife and daughter. He's coveting his friend's wife and daughter. David had it in his mind to take and to use, which is in direct contrast to Jesus who came to serve and to give. Now, after sending to ask about Bathsheba in verse 4, it says David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to him, he slept with her. Again, David sends. He uses his authority to satisfy his own desires. He uses his power to make provision for his own flesh. And he uses other people to do his dirty work. He's proud of the power that he has, and he uses it thinking he deserves whatever he can take. Now that next line in verse 4 about Bathsheba purifying herself from her uncleanness is there to leave us with no doubts about who the father is. can only be David's boy when it turns out that Bathsheba is pregnant. And as I read these verses about David's reaction to this vulnerable woman that he sees from a distance, I can't help but think about what a contrast this is to our Lord Jesus and his reaction to a vulnerable woman that he saw at a distance. Consider the woman at the well in John chapter 4. It was the middle of the day, and there's a woman there alone drawing water from this well, and Jesus is alone. The disciples are out in town buying food. And Jesus and this woman are alone. And how does he treat her? Well, she's actually shocked by how he treats her because he talks to her like a human being. And she says to him, who are you uh, as a Jew and a rabbi to be talking to me, a Samaritan woman? And they have a conversation. He spoke to her in order to offer her living spiritual water so that she would never be thirsty again. So David saw a woman at a distance and sends others in to take her for himself. When Jesus saw a woman at a distance and treated her like a human being and then offers to give her eternal life. Back to David, though, he has now break, broken the Tenth Commandment, not to covet, and the Eighth Commandment, which is not to steal, and the Seventh Commandment, which is not to commit adultery. See, there's a reason God warns us against sin in the Bible. Willful sin can get out of hand quickly. It can take you further than you want to go, faster than you want to get there. Uh, sin is like, a, it'd be like if you willfully opened your door, I think you'll understand this in North Carolina, it'd be like if you will, uh, willfully opened your door to two cockroaches. And you're like, this will be fine. It's just two. That's not how it's going to end. There's going to be an infestation. Sin grows and grows out of hand if we don't treat it, if we don't address it. We see that happening here in David's life. After Bathsheba sends the word, I am pregnant, David immediately plans a cover-up, which is a violation of the ninth commandment, not to bear false witness. Here, David is a man of lies, whereas our Lord Jesus came to testify to the truth. In verse 6, again, David sent order, orders to Joab, send me the Uriah the Hethite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. I think we're meant to see the arrogance of all this sending. 
the control and the power of it. Uriah came to David, and after feigning interest, he kind of chats him up. He says, how are you, Uriah? How's the war going? How's all that? And then he tries to get him to go home and rest. We're not yet told what David is up to, but when Uriah doesn't go home, when instead he sleeps at the door of the palace, David questions him the next day. David doesn't say it this way, but he must have been thinking, what is wrong with you, Uriah? You've been out at battle fighting uh, this war. It's been terrible. And why would you not go home to your beautiful wife? The cover-up is not going according to David's plan. Look at Uriah's answer to David in verse 11. He says, The ark, Israel, and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my master Joab and his soldiers are camping in the open field. How can I enter my house to eat and drink and sleep with my wife? As surely as you live and by your life, I will not do this. Now here, Uriah's integrity reminds me of Jesus, reminds me of our Lord when he said to his disciples, on the night when he was betrayed, he said to his disciples, truly I tell you, I will not eat or drink of the fruit of the vine until I drink it with you in the new heavens and new earth. So right now, our Lord Jesus is abstaining from a good thing while we, his people, are still suffering through our spiritual battles here on this earth. And just like that, Uriah is abstaining from a good thing while his people were on the front lines. David might have forgotten there was a war going on, but Uriah had not. So David commanded Uriah to stay another day, and that night, David invited Uriah to eat and drink with him, and David got him drunk. Now, you can see what the plan was there, but look at what Uriah did in verse 13. Yet again, he did not go home. He maintains his integrity. Now, realize that at no point in here is David concerned about what Bathsheba will think or say. She knows who the father is. David's concern is for his public reputation when this baby is born. Who... You know, he doesn't want anybody to find out who the real father is. So he's trying to cover this up. And David does all this sending in these few weeks of his life. The problem is that Uriah is not doing what David wants him to do. David's arrogant exercise of authority cannot protect him from the consequences of his own wrongful actions. His authority can't protect him from the consequences of his actions because there is an authority greater than David. There is a king of kings and a lord of lords who is, while David is about his work sending and trying to get away, from, get away with things, the king of kings is sending things David's way that are outside of David's control that are going to end up with David exposed. God will bring justice in the end. But David isn't yet ready to repent and once again acknowledge that king of kings. Instead, he doubles down on his cover-up strategy. And he sends a letter with Uriah to Joab. And the letter says this, verse 15, chapter 11. Put Uriah at the front of the fiercest fighting. Then withdraw from him so that he is struck down and dies. Now that's something to send by the hand of the one whose death sentence it is. In so doing... David now plots to break the sixth commandment, which is, thou shalt not murder. David decided to take a life through the hands of others 
to protect himself. In contrast to King Jesus, who came here to give his life, to give up control at the hands of others, to rescue us. Uriah faithfully brings this letter to Joab, who carried out the orders. Uriah is killed. Joab sends word back to David, and David replies that Joab should be encouraged. What a mess. In verse 26, we see the same phrase Matthew used to highlight David's sin. The author calls Bathsheba simply Uriah's wife. You see the jab at David there again. Well, Bathsheba mourned for her dead husband in verse 27. When the time of her mourning ended, David had her brought to his house. Once again, David sends others to do his bidding. And then she became his wife and bore him a son. However, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. King David points away from King Jesus in this chapter. He is anti-Christ in his actions. He breaks the second half of the Ten Commandments And we know that if we break any of the Ten Commandments, we've broken the first commandment, which is you shall have no other gods before me. So that means that outward sin is a sign of inward idolatry. Outward sin is a sign, or for that matter, inward sin is a sign that we have another God besides God. In this chapter, David's God is his own desire, and then it's his reputation, and ultimately it's his pride in his own name and who he is. And it blinds him to anything else. He's trying to worship this false God and it blinds him to everything that's right and good. And yet this story, despite the violation of the Ten Commandments, this story is not the end of David's story. God doesn't cast him out. God doesn't end his line. Instead, in the depths of his mess, God acts in grace. What a mess. What a mess, but what grace. Let's talk about God's grace in the mess now. For the rest of this incident between David and the wife of Uriah, I want to, I want to point out four moves that God's grace makes in the mess. Four moves God's grace makes in the mess of our sin. First move, grace confronts sinners. Grace confronts sinners. Now, we've noticed that David has been sending and sending and sending people to do his bidding, to get his way, to satisfy his own sinful desires. But now it's God's turn to send. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. It starts simply, So the Lord sent Nathan to David. That's not good for David. There's a king above all kings, and through Nathan, he's about to confront David's evil. God's grace never overlooks our evil. God's grace always confronts us in the reality of our sin. Grace can only come in the context of truth. And so the Lord sends Nathan to speak a parable to David. It's probably the second best sermon recorded in the Bible. Here's what Nathan says, starting in verse 1, chapter 12. There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor, the rich man had very large flocks and herds, but the poor, the poor man had nothing at all except one small ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised her, and she grew up with him and with his children. From his meager food she would eat, from his cup she would drink, and in his arms she would sleep. She was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man could not bring himself to take one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for his guest. David was infuriated with the man and said to Nathan, 
As the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. Because he has done this thing and shown no pity, he must pay four lambs for that lamb. Nathan replied to David, and I don't know what the tone was here. Is he yelling? Is he weeping? I don't know. But he says, you are the man. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I rescued from you from Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that was not enough, I would have given you even more. Why then have you despised the Lord's command by doing what I consider evil? You struck down Uriah the Hethite with the sword and took his wife as your own wife. You murdered him with the Ammonites' sword. David had everything he could ever want, and it wasn't enough. There's a whole sermon there we could talk about. He, could have all the, he had all the power. He had all the accolades, everything he could ever want, and it wasn't enough. But for today, just see that it is God's grace to send Nathan to David to confront him in his sin. There can be no restoration in the absence of confrontation. God's grace tells us the truth about ourselves. God sent his son to be a savior to us. We didn't just need a moral teacher. We didn't just need a helper. We didn't just need a spiritual assist. We are sinners who need a Savior. We need more than good advice. We need good news that God has done something about our sin. So we're confronted by the cross itself just as David is confronted by Nathan. The first move God's grace makes is to confront us in our sin. Then the second move God's grace makes is to call forth repentance. It calls forth repentance. After all of Nathan's speaking, David finally says in verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. He finally comes to honest confession. We can hear more of David's confession if we turn to Psalm 51, which David wrote when he was confronted by Nathan. We heard a little bit of it earlier in in the prayer. There in Psalm 51, David gets honest with God and, and prays this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. When we're confronted with our sin in the full awareness of God's mercy and grace, Repentance wells up within us. When you know the grace of God and the mercy of God, the kindness of God, it allows you to be honest about the sin in your own heart and come to repentance. The grace of God calls forth repentance, and we ask Him for right spirits so that we will turn from our sin to holiness. Grace confronts sinners, then grace calls forth repentance. And the third move of God's grace in this chapter is that grace cleanses from sin. God's grace actually cleanses us from sin. Immediately after David confesses his sin, Nathan assures him, and the Lord has taken away your sin, you will not die. As David prayed in Psalm 51, the Lord did blot out his transgressions. Long after David's life, we see the proof of this, that David is forgiven, that he's welcome in the family of God, that these sins are not counted against him. We see the proof of it in that the prophets call him a servant of God. Most notably of all, Jesus himself comes through David's line. And many times in Jesus' ministry, he allows people to call him the son of David. And then beyond that, the apostles in the New Testament 
continually show reverence to David. They quote him. There's one time in Acts 4 where they're praying to the Lord and they call David a servant of the Lord. David has been restored. He's cleansed. He's forgiven. He's forgiven of breaking the Ten Commandments. The Lord took away his sin. And you realize what that means for your sin and for my sin. It means we can be forgiven. We can be washed clean and made new. Whatever the mess was that we made, we can be forgiven because God's grace moves. But the next part of the story shows us this fourth move of God's grace, and it's that God's grace comes at a cost. God's grace comes at a cost. It doesn't come cheaply. It comes at a cost. David sinned, and though he was forgiven, there would be consequences for his sin. In 2 Samuel 12, verses 10 through 12, Nathan says that because of David's use of the sword against Uriah, the sword will never leave your house. This is what the Lord says, I'm going to bring disaster on you from your own family. I'll take your wives and give them to another before your very eyes, and he will sleep with them in broad daylight. You acted in secret, but I will do this before all Israel and in broad daylight. There'd be violence in David's house because of David's sin. There'd be consequence. There'd be consequences. And the forgiveness of God doesn't mean the absence of consequences. What it means is that there will never be the absence of God's loving presence. Doesn't mean the absence of consequences. It means there will never be the absence of God's loving presence. And for David, the most immediate consequence of his actions with Bathsheba uh, is that the baby that they have is going to die. The baby uh, birthed, begotten through adultery is going to die. Verse 14 says, However, because you treated the Lord with such contempt in this matter, the son born to you will die. And yet there's grace even in that. Now, we have to take the long view to see the grace there. That baby died. Then later, David and Bathsheba, after mourning and grieving that, had another son. That son was King Solomon. And through his line came another baby, another son of David. And so the son of David who ends this story in a tomb will one day be pulled out of that tomb by the greater son of David who came through Solomon's line, who went through a tomb for us and came out the other side. The baby in this story who went and ended in the tomb is in the presence of the greater son of Jesus, or son of David right now, that's Jesus. And he'll one day be pulled out of that tomb by the resurrected Jesus. There's grace in the mess. That's the gospel. There's hope, resurrection hope. The child had to die for David's sin, but it's not the end of that boy's story. There's future grace for him too. There is grace in the mess. And if the grace appears on the timeline of eternity, there still will be grace in the mess. The cost of grace then is born entirely by God himself. God sent his son to die in our place. God bore the cost to forgive us of our sins so that we could be welcomed in, so that this baby who never had a chance has a future hope, so that we sinners who have no hope now have a hope because we've been brought into the family of God by the payment of 
the greater son of David, Jesus Christ. There is a cost to grace, and God has paid it. Hallelujah. So what does all this mean for us? Two things, a warning and a welcome. The warning is that no sin will remain hidden. Romans 2.16 tells us that there will be a day when God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Like David, your sin and my sin will be found out. It is seen by God. You can control the disclosure of your sin through honest confession, or you can wait and let God disclose it. Here's what the Lord himself says in Jeremiah 23, 24. Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. The Lord saw David, and he sees you, and he sees me. And the warning is that today is the day of salvation. Will you come clean to him and confess and repent and receive the grace of the gospel? Will you hear that Nathan is saying to you today, you are the man. I am the man who has sinned against God, broken the Ten Commandments. Maybe the Holy Spirit is confronting you with some sin right now. Will you allow His grace to call forth repentance from you? That's the warning. But there's also the welcome. The welcome is that whatever mess there is, or whatever mess there has been, or whatever mess there will be in your life, God's grace is greater. Grace that is greater than all our sin. King David himself, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, wrote these words to us in Psalm 103. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Jesus on the cross prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. There's no sin that you can commit that puts you outside the reach of the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He came here to pay the price for our sin. We might have to face some consequences in this life. But we can be forgiven, washed clean, made new if we'll turn away from our sin to God. In fact, the Scriptures tell us that whenever one sinner repents and turns from our sin to God, there is joy in the presence of the angels. I don't know if that means confetti. I don't know if it means bugles. But there is a party when a sinner Repents, not when a righteous person finally gets their life straightened out, but when a sinner repents. There is grace in the mess for you and for me. So sinner, welcome. Repent and come on in. There's grace. The son of David has come and he's coming again. That's a warning and it's a welcome. David, this David in in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, this David who is faithful to God except in the matter of Uriah's wife, says to you and says to me these words from Psalm 95, Today, if you hear his voice, Jesus' voice, do not harden your hearts. You know, I don't get that mad about the perpetual mess under the littlest one's chair. I mean, sometimes I get mad about it, let me be honest. Sometimes I get kind of frustrated, hopefully in a good way that's for their good. But I don't get that mad about it. Do you know why? Because I love my children. And I'd so much rather have the pretzel dust than not have them. And in the same way, God loves you through his son. And he's brought you in. If you just turn and believe in this greater son of David, whatever the mess is of your life, come on in and praise him. Let's pray. Lord, we need your help. Father, we need your help to see the truth of our own sin. So easy for us, Lord, to blame shift, to blame others, to blame our circumstances, 
to blame the tough things that have maybe happened to us, but help us to see what's ours, what our sin is. We all have it. Help us to turn and trust you. Help us to trust your grace. Help us not to look to human saviors, but to Christ, the only one who is fully divine and fully human. And thank you for sending him, Lord, to be born for us so that we might be forgiven, washed clean, and made new. Help us to believe. Help us, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.